Hello, welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that's trying to prove it's 18 years old so it can spend summer 2018 interrailing around Europe on the EU's tab. The EU has announced it's giving up to 30,000 young people across Europe a month's free interrail pass worth up to 510 euros. As Jim Bowen used to say, look what you could have won. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky and with me I have two of our regular presenters. Ros Taylor is Research Manager of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission at the London School of Economics. She also works on the LSE Brexit blog. Hi Ros, how are you? I'm very well. I just wish I'd been interrailing. Now it's too late. <laughs> so, so, so late. Me too. Um, there was an astonishing story on LSE Brexit blogs this week headlined, A Hard Brexit Will See Criminals Taking Back Control. Uh, good headline, got to say. Mm, not mine what, either. <laughs> what, what was that all about? Um, well, it was by uh, one of our visiting fellows, uh, Gies de Vries. I hope I've pronounced that right. He's a Dutchman who used to be, uh, he's a former um, head of counterterrorism across the EU. So, you know, what does he know? But um, he was uh, basically talking about the number of agencies the UK is involved with across the EU, which help to catch criminals and terrorists and other malefactors. Um, and they're an enormous number of these. Um, I hadn't realised quite how many there were. But the fact is that we all drop out of them at the end of the transition period. And we therefore, have, if we're going to be, still be part of them, it's a bit like the whole Euroton thing, we have to renegotiate our place in them. And as you find with so, other, with so many other Brexit issues, um, we will end up probably trying to get a seat at the table, failing, but getting access to some data. And so we will hopefully still be able to uh, get this uh, to get this information we need and to be able to share photos of criminals, forge documents, all that sort of thing. But it will get more difficult and we won't be able to have a say in the running of these agencies. Also with us, we have armchair examiner and business brain Peter Collins back with us after a short break from the show. Hi, Peter. How are you? Fine, fine. Very good. And the campaign from listeners to get Peter on Twitter. You're kidding me. Is, um, I, I, nobody wants to hear from me on, on Twitter Listen, or possibly anything else. There are teenagers <laughs> in St Petersburg operating literally dozens of Twitter accounts and you no, can't even manage one to, to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us today, we have a guest who has been all over one particular aspect of Brexit. Jay Rayner is the restaurant critic of The Observer and a food journalist who has delved into what Brexit is going to mean for our food culture and our food supply. He's the author of A Greedy Man in a Hungry World. He hosts The Kitchen Cabinet on Radio 4, and he's a jazz pianist on the side. Last year, he memorably turned down a pick-your-brains request from incoming Food and Rural Affairs Minister Michael Gove by saying he couldn't sit down with a man of whom he thought so little. Writing to Gove in tones he usually reserves for a criminally disappointing lobster beast, he said that if you can't feed a country, you don't have a country. Hello, Jay, how are you? I'm very well. Delighted to be here. Um, yes, I, I did have that contretemps with Gove. He's an odd one, isn't he? Well, he odd, is peculiar. Odd in that he sort of previously goaded you on Twitter yeah, and then asked a, for help. There was a period, so that you have to follow it back. I had a row with his um, partner, Sarah Vine, before breakfast on Twitter. Just me, not one of my 47 accounts coming out of St. <laughs> Petersburg. And um, I, it was all about how many kitchens they had, and she kind of lost on that. And then in the point when he was in the wilderness, it was just before Christmas 2016, he started attacking me over me trying to flog some of my books through shop. Well, Other apparently he's weirdly aggressive. It can be. Uh, Damon Alban told me a story where after the referendum, uh, again, the wilderness sort of period, he sort of saw Gove across the street and shouted out something abusive, as you might. And then go to sort of marched over the street and went, what did you say? Excellent. Um, <laughs> Which is just like, don't start The mask falls. I mean, you know, there was a point where I, I, I said in my exchange with him that night, 
Michael, do you remember the time when you were so busy and important, taking time out to troll me would have been unthinkable? (laughs) (laughs) And and then he is reappointed, Defra, and asks me to come to this meeting. I decide I'm not a big enough man to sit in the same room with what I have to say is a, a pretty motley crew of people that he assembled. Um, probably people who wanted to talk about organics and local all afternoon. And so I wrote him a three and a half thousand word submission, um, which I posted on my website and somewhat went rather viral. It was downloaded from that site 150,000 times, which for a small oh. personal website yeah. is quite a thing. It's weird to see it happen. Suggested to me there was a thirst for information around what Brexit could mean. Um, and obviously, like, food is your kind of specialist area as a writer. Um, I'm also guessing perhaps not your only objection to Look, Brexit. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, the thing about interrailing, I was that child in, in I was that kid in 84, interrailing all over Europe. I have, I have a son who's 18 years old, and I think the things, the opportunities that have been removed from him, and also what it has done to the culture of the country, who we are, who we are as a peoples. And there are some very fundamental issues. You go back to the founding uh, of what is now called the EU and why it was founded and what it said about Europe as a project and what we are turning our backs on. Uh, Food is the thing I happen to know something about as a reporter, but there are many, so many issues that just, like all of us, make me drop my head into my hands. Um, You're you're dropping your head into your hands on a weekly basis. I'm a visiting (laughs) head dropper. And your most famously harsh review was of Le Sanc in Paris, which you said was the worst experience. I've just reread it. It was the worst experience you'd had in 18 years on the job. Yeah, and one of the curious things about that was that the the restaurant itself responded by saying this was clearly the remarks of an arch-Brexiteer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was anti-French, which is... Are we allowed to use uh, words like bollocks? Um, it, yes. You know, it clearly wasn't the case. It was an awful, awful restaurant, and it was charging €300 Euros a head. I had to say what I had to say. Jay, one of my first jobs in journalism, if you can call it a job because it wasn't paid, I was living in Paris and I was working for Time Out Paris, mm. and I worked on the first edition of the Time Out Guide to Eating and Drinking in Paris. One of the things I had to do was to phone up all these restaurants and explain that we wanted to put them in the Time Out Guide to Eating and Drinking in Paris, which obviously was an English-language publication. Yeah. I can tell you, that was a baptism of fire. I remember calling up Le Mâchoir d'Henri. Uh, I think it was Henri who answered the phone, but I wasn't sure. Anyway, and he told me exactly how much he wanted his restaurant in any kind of directory of <laughs> read by British people. It was it was gone. Yeah, they, they, that was the hilarious thing. I mean, it has to be said, it, that review went viral, two and a half million page views thereabouts, mm. um, and shared 100,000, whatever, times, and it was headlines in across the world. Um, and in France, the Figaro, uh, you know, they, they all, Le Monde, they all ran pieces. The rest of the world kind of gave me a round of applause and the French hate me. Probably better than the other way around. <laughs> this is why we're not allowed to put you on the negotiating team now. Then. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's unfortunate. Actually, I'm planning a trip back to Paris for the first time in about a month's time. I'm hoping I'll be able to get in unhindered. We'll get into Britain's post-Brexit food predicament in more detail with Jay a little later in the show. We'll also be talking about the Russian spy hit in Salisbury. What are Britain's options now that we've isolated ourselves in Europe? The phrase Russian spy hit in Salisbury is not one I ever thought that I would be saying aloud. <laughs> Plus fish, why are we so obsessed with Britain's fisheries? And another Jeremy Corbyn migration row. Was the Labour leader echoing UKIP rhetoric when he attacked EU workers undercutting wages in Britain? Or is he only targeting employers who use EU legislation to secure cheap labour? All this and more after a quick announcement from Peter.
Two things for your attention this week. If you're in the north of England and anywhere near Leeds on Saturday the 24th of March, then please go along and support the Great Northern March Against Brexit. It's time to coincide with the first anniversary of Article 50 being triggered and the organisers are aiming to put on the biggest march that Leeds has yet seen. Speakers include friends of the show Lord Adonis, AC Grayling and Sue Wilson from Remain in Spain, plus the Greens co-leader Jonathan Bartley. You can find out more at stopbrexitmarch.com. Closer to home, we've released the recordings of our first Romaniacs Live, exclusively to our lovely Patreon backers. So if you couldn't make it to London for the live show, you can hear and download it all from our Patreon page. It's available to all Patreons on all tiers, so even new backers can hear it. There'll be news on the next Romaniacs Live soon, and Patreon backers will always get early bird access to tickets. Find out more at romaniacs.com or search Romaniacs Patreon, or go to patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast. Join in and own the Ramon. Or join in and own the Ramones, because we'll be giving away a free seminal 1970s punk band with every subscription. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Peter. Watch out, here comes Brexit news. First up, Britain's new status as the outsider of Europe faced its first real test this week, with the Russian nerve agent attack on former spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury. The European Union offered Britain solidarity on Monday, but held off on any threats of new sanctions while Theresa May considers her options. At first, her supposed new best friend Donald Trump was silent on the issue, and it fell to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to condemn the attack and co-sign May's blaming of Russia. And then Tillerson got sacked. As one Twitter wit put it, tyrant is sore at Rex. (laughs) Still, we're told Theresa rang Trump yesterday, now he's with us all the way, so that's okay. Inevitably, there's been the usual pushback on social media, insisting that we don't know if the Russians did it, and a revolting today interview with Russian MP Vitaly Milanov, who made the usual claims about fake news. But the fact is our relationship with Russia is worse than at any time since the Cold War, and we are weaker and more isolated. Rods, Britain leaving the EU has been described as the culmination of 30 years of Russian foreign policy. Is the Salisbury hit, still weird phrase, intended for domestic Russian consumption, or is it part of the, the sinister strategy to undermine Britain? Both. Uh, very much both. Uh, there are elections coming up in Russia. I mean, insofar as elections in Russia are meaningful any longer, um, there's no doubt that it would play well with some parts of a domestic audience, this kind of hit. But more widely, it is designed to undermine and weaken Britain. It's also playing into a strategy... Uh, Putin really couldn't be happier that Britain is leaving the EU because who wants a strong, powerful bloc on their doorstep when they would quite like to go in and take back, take over, however you might want to see it, Estonia. Uh, and I'm saying that, you know, very carefully. So um, that basically... Russia regards the EU as a threat. The more divided the EU is, the better, as far as he's concerned. Uh, And it's part of a bigger strategy to sow confusion, fear, misinformation. Because, I mean, I do try every now and then just to sort of check myself and not get um, too carried away over Russian interference in various uh, Western countries um, because I don't want to be too Louise Mensch about it. But then... (laughs) Nobody does. Stuff just does sort of keep happening with the best way I mean when, you, when, when people do find banks say well we don't know anything and why are you always blaming Russia it's a, a real obsession Glenn Greenwald has a big obsession with this and it's like it's it's extraordinarily hard not to blame them for at least one of these very suspicious things there's a very interesting little detail in um, the current issue of the New Yorker which may be a week ago by the time you're listening to this uh, there's a big profile of Christopher Steele hmm. former MI6 operative who then wrote the Trump dossier um, and he was the ran the Russia desk 
at MI6 before setting up uh, his private consultancy, whatever it is. Uh, and the thing I spotted this morning was that Christopher Steele was the man who conducted the inquiry into the Litvinenko murder. So if there is one person we actually want to hear from now who will know more than anything is this chap Christopher Steele who was threatened with being subpoenaed by the Justice Department in the US. It's a very weird little connection, that one. It's an amazing profile. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's the Russian strategy is very interesting. And if you look at Russia Today in particular, Russia Today is a broadcaster that now has, you know, has an outlet in Britain. At the moment, it's licensed to broadcast in Britain, but Ofcom sent a quite harshly worded letter yesterday saying that it would have to see whether Russia Today could still be considered fit to be a broadcaster in Britain. There's also an outlet called Sputnik, which gets less attention, but is also entirely Kremlin-funded. And both of them, uh, you may have seen their advertising campaigns around, their shtick is very much to put across the idea that they are opening up the debate and their slogan is question more. So what they're actually saying is don't necessarily trust anybody. Which sounds quite nice as a, as, a, as a starting point. And then you think, well, yes, but there are certain things on which I do, certain people I do trust. Who exactly are you asking me not to trust? This is very much their strategy to, to, to divide populations. And it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the after effect of a, ter- a terrorist attack. Um, because once, even though you know your chance of being blown up on public transport is very low, when it happens, you get worried about going on public transport. And it's, it's the same thing if you have believed information and then that has been shown to be false or you have lost confidence in people, you, uh, you have the same ambivalence, you have the same fear, you have the same caution. That's the strategy in which a lot of uh, Russian misinformation works. Well, the roots of, of uh, disinf- Russian disinformation sort of goes back a long way. Um, you know, Peter Pomerantsev's book, Nothing is True, Everything is Possible. I don't know if he deliberately sort of uh, borrowed the line from there, but it's in Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. And she's saying, like, the, the objective of uh, Stalinism was to make, not to seem that sort of certain things were true and certain things were false, but that everything was sort of on an equal playing field, that perhaps sort of nothing was true, and she erode... That, that sort of sense. And of course, that does appeal to, as you can see on Twitter, even if you weed out the, the bots, I mean, that, that is quite an appealing idea. A lot of people go, well, this is a state broadcaster, but so is the BBC. And so to put everything on a playing field, and, it, and it's, it's sort of, it's not, uh, it's not a secret thing. That's not a conspiracy theory. It's been well uh, explained in, in, in Peter's book and, you know, various other accounts of sort of how Putin operates. And so it's sort of, in a way, even if Russia wasn't intervening in any further ways it's already it's already given us a very special gift in the shape of a kind of the whole infrastructure and psychology of fake news and indeed this idea that oh you don't want to trust export experts we've heard enough of experts um you know the the brexit the um, guys borrowed that kind of te- technique uh, absolutely uh, it's it's it is the same thing i trust david jones 103247 who's a proud dad and middlesbrough supporter <laughs> <laughs> yeah. doesn't like political correctness speaks his mind for followers and in the us they call it red pilling and blue pilling and um for our listeners who might not be familiar with that it's a, it's a notion that comes from the Matrix. You, uh, if you, you can either take the blue pill and be happy and basically know nothing, or you can take the red pill and everything will be revealed to you. And it's like an entry strategy. You start doubting, you start being unsure about things, and then once you've bought into one minor level conspiracy theory 
then you become a lot more open to others as well, and you and and, to, and and the structure in which you've previously believed starts falling apart. On a, on a sort of more practical level, what can Britain not in its strongest position right now do to take action against Russia? Sanctions is always the first thing that gets mentioned. How effective are they at putting the squeeze on? Actually, there's another point that needs to be made about this, Hmm. which is that it strikes me that Theresa May's rhetoric on this seems to have grabbed her as a way of looking strong, given all their weaknesses. So there Hmm. is, you know, UKGov trying to trying to negotiate with the EU and doing an absolutely appalling job of it and being accused of looking weak and feckless. But here is something they can push back on. Um, and if you listen to the, the rhetoric of the, the original speech, it was pure Churchill, September the 1st, 1939, if we do not hear from you by midnight, we will. Now, then you raise your interesting question. What exactly do they do? Do they switch off the bank accounts? Do they... I think it's, it's, extreme, it's extremely difficult. First of all, uh, you know, in the, in the rest of the EU, you have uh, a lot of political parties, uh, like in Italy, Germany and so on, that are pro-Russian, that have been essentially bought off, frankly, by the Russians. So that your, our hopes, even if we were not leaving the EU, of getting some kind of united front would be would be hindered by that, although they would be a lot better than they are now. Uh, just looking at what we can do on our own, can we ban Russia today? Well, it doesn't really matter banning the actual broadcast of it because what they do is then they send all their, all their tweets and all of their Facebook posts and so on out there. You'd have to ban Facebook and Twitter, which I'm the only person in Britain who's in favour of this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant point because the idea of, you know, Ofcom ruling RT off the airwaves, mm. that's how very, you know, 1997 that is. It's missing the point entirely. It, it is, but also it would be, I think, counterproductive because Russia would retaliate by kicking all the BBC and other British journalists out of Moscow and then we would know even less about what was happening in Russia than we already do. But hasn't John McDonnell said that he won't appear on RT again? And so there may be a better... I mean, I don't know whether you should ban, you know, TV news stations. Um... But the idea of pressuring people to not go out there and know exactly what it is you're dealing with, which lie did they tell? But if you starve them of of legitimacy, so you'll have no Labour MPs appearing on there, for example, and if all that's left is their kind of bedrock of kind of cranks. Alex Salmond. (laughs) Well, yeah, and Alex Salmond. What What do you mean cranks and Alex (laughs) Salmond? But this is why it's outrageous. This is why it's becoming more of a lie. I remember people didn't really sort of complain when someone was on RT, but when Alex Salmond announced that that show, there was quite a lot of pushback. Its its reputation has definitely fallen, even more so probably since they started poisoning people in Salisbury. <laughs> not not RT itself, obviously. But there's not the point that even you know even limited action against the Russian oligarchs in Britain is very tricky because we have to assume that a fair number of them are um, helping or being at least in communication with MI6 and Western intelligence and so on. Maybe ones that uh, will publicly support. Putin, for all we know, um, how can you get rid of the baddies, the ones who we're worried about, and leave behind a bunch of other guys who then are clearly labelled as, you know, pro-British, helping British... Well, there was another death this morning, so perhaps they're going to remove that dilemma for us by just knocking off all the ones we like. And what will that mean for the restaurant sector in London (laughs) that uh, I, you know, depend upon to have something to write about? Well, it was bad... (laughs) Really, without without the Russian money, there there are a whole bunch of restaurants that would go to the wall tomorrow. Of course, yeah, and I'm afraid there's no time to address the ZZ angle. (laughs) 
of, of the Salisbury situation. I, I came so close to tweeting out, you think my reviews are tough. <laughs> um, Next up, in a somewhat unlikely alliance, Michael Gove and Remainer Ruth Davidson have joined forces to call for Britain to leave the EU's common fisheries policy as part of Brexit. It's not surprising to hear Gove saying this, but why Davidson? Uh, Peter, what's going on here? You've been you've been boning up on fish. Sorry, that was I didn't mean <laughs> I really didn't mean that to be a bad joke, but it, it, apparently it Why was. Not? Let's go with it. Go on. What's going on here is Scottish politics. Uh, you might expect Govey to be in favour of leaving the Common Fisheries Policy, but Ruth Davidson, Queen of Soft Brexiters and Remainers, uh, is more of a surprise. Unless you remember that in the last in last year's election, the strong performance by the Scottish Conservatives, which she leads, taking seats off the SNP. Several of those seats include the towns of. Peterhead, which is by far Scotland's biggest uh, fishing port, plus Fraserburgh, Kakubri and Bucky. Also, you've got th- at least three more Scottish fishing ports, uh, Campbelltown, Troon and Oban, which are in Westminster constituencies where the Conservatives are now in second place and presumably she's got her BDI on those. Of course, the same is true also for the Scottish Parliament seats, which is her current um, ob- obsession getting a bigger representation in the Scottish Parliament. So in a nutshell, Ruth is being ruthless. <laughs> We're on a roll here. Ken Dodd isn't missed so much, clearly. We're taking his place. What happens if we do leave the common fisheries policy? Like, can you an idea here of if this is a good or a bad thing, Jay? Um, you see, one of the really curious things about the whole Brexit issue is that it obscures wider underlying issues, which is that the common agricultural policy and the fisheries policy are both desperately in need of reform anyway. So. Uh, we're, we're certainly with the current agricultural policy, as in what's going on on the farms, that is up for discussion already. Um, and so go making statements about what he wants to do does not mean that that's a, 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 it looks like a radical diversion from EU policy. It's not. It's actually what's already going on. Um, the fisheries one, well, it probably will actually result in cheaper prices on certain fish. But there's a major, major issue for Britain's fisheries, which is the really good stuff the langoustine, the cockles and all of that sort of stuff. We don't eat them. Um, We export them. We export them to Spain in enormous volumes, to France in enormous volumes. So, yes, um, he might be able to come up with a way that increases quotas. And actually, maybe he can come up with a way that deals with the the whole bycatch issue, which is a serious problem and a failing in... uh, the European fisheries policy. Could you just briefly explain that? All right, the bycatch policy is that there are certain things you're not allowed to catch. If they're undersized or they're certain species um, and you have to chuck them back in, which means that you end up, you're going to, the way fishing works, you are going to bring up certain things that you weren't trying to catch. And the policy requires you to throw them back off the side or, or waste them. And it is incredibly wasteful. It's pointless. It's, but that it's has been changed. Changes. That's in the process of being changed now. And as, it, it, as in a lot of these cases, the reforms are already underway that exactly. solve, the, solve the problems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so Gove can look like he's, cam, you know, he, he's being uh, cavalier and he's out there at the front. He's leading from the front. But actually he isn't. He's part of a wider European debate that's been going on for five or ten years anyway. And how does uh, issues of sustainability play into this? Like in terms of the kind of fish that are that are being um, overfished and the ones we should be eating more of? I there, mean- there is certainly a case to be said that fisher, fishing policies have been 
clumsy in dealing with uh, questions of, of where stocks lie. So things change quite quickly. Um, and one sort of species that you thought might be completely under pressure suddenly is doing very, very nicely, but the fishing policy doesn't pick up on it. Um, so it does need to be a hell of a lot more flexible, but it is it is the main issue. You know, it's taken a while for people to realise that cod is actually fine. The North Atlantic cod... Uh, stocks are back up. More to the point, there's been a biomass explosion in the Bering Sea um, as a result of climate. This is an amazing story that very little sp- spoken about. Uh, a half percent rise in the temperature of the Bering Sea. Climate change, it has its benefit. Um, half, half percent has resulted in a massive increase in the fecundity of cod in the Bering Sea. And they now have so much cod in there, they've had to introduce quotas to stop the price collapsing. So what's the new cod then? What's the thing that the ethical Guardian Stroke Observer reader should be avoiding? Uh, monkfish. You should probably be avoiding monkfish. That's not a, not a particularly good one to be hitting in vast amounts. And there are certain of the other flatfish you probably want to stick to farmed rather than wild. Um, sea bass, you know, wild sea bass has come off and wild salmon has come off. If you can get them farmed, that's the way to go. But the important thing is that the fish are not well read on the United Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea. They don't know where exactly the 200 <laughs> yeah. nautical mile boundary is. They, they float That's why they keep getting caught. Well, if exactly. they were just a little <laughs> exactly. more clued yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the whole issue with the, uh, is it the sardines that uh, migrated north to the Faroe Islands in vast numbers. And then the Faroe Islands, which is outside of all of these agreements, just started taking sardines out of the water in enormous volumes because they could. Um, it was one of those things that had, it, it happened in a matter of months, I think, that the sardine stocks just migrated north because of temperatures changing. Yeah. And the popular point is that it, it, the, given all of these realities, the geographical realities of it all, it makes sense to have a Europe-wide agreement with scientists setting sensible levels, even if they don't get it perfectly all right every single time. It's better than nothing. And, you know, there isn't, there isn't actually a better alternative to that. The one thing I would say is that all of those policies, the agricultural policies and the fisheries policies, have become increasingly flawed as the years have gone by. And I'm sure you're going to get me to talk about the common agricultural policy and the problems with it um, later on. And Europe has proved itself very, very slow. So I've found myself having to say I am, a, a, you know, a diehard Remainer, um, anti-Brexit, However, this element of EU policy has been wrong for a long time. Yeah. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with saying no. that. There's nothing that you don't have to sign up to every single directive in order to be a, a Remainer. It's it's just not necessary. Finally, uh, labour and migration. Our producer Andrew got us into a row with some Corbyn supporters over the weekend for retweeting a story about Labour's Scottish conference, which had the following headline: Jeremy Corbyn has said Brexit will put a stop to firms, open quotes, importing cheap labour to undercut the wages of UK workers. Was this, as Nicola Sturgeon said, discredited UKIP rhetoric about immigrants driving down wages? Or was Corbyn, as his supporters said, not attacking migrants themselves, but the employers who bring them in as cheap labour under the European Posted Workers Directive? And is there actually a difference? Can you criticise the bosses bringing in migrants or importing in that horrible word for human beings um, without criticising the migrants themselves? 
I don't think you can. I mean, the same speech Corbyn called for Britain to retain the benefits of the customs union and the single market. And of course, one of the most important benefits of the single market is freedom of movement, or as Ian would say if he was here, freedom to seek employment across the EU. Now, his defenders are probably right that he's talking about this specific thing, the European Posted Workers Directive, which is a certain small, small, small subset of European workers that come to Britain or to other countries. But what's the difference, really? Does he believe all European workers have a right to take a job at whatever pay they can, uh, they're prepared to accept, or doesn't he? What's the difference? Well, I mean, because the European Posted Workers Directive, which of course is, is what he said he was concentrating on, if it is such a small thing, then why sort of talk about it? That's where it felt like a little a sort well, of dog me, whistling to the leave block. Let me tell you, although I, I should remind listeners that I'm not particularly a Jeremy Corbyn or Labour supporter, <laughs> let me explain to you why. It is a tiny, tiny subset of EU workers who travel, who work across borders. Uh, the people who criticise the Posted Workers Directive sometimes give the false claim that it means that they're not subject to labour laws. They are. They're subject to the minimum wage, maximum working hours, entitlement to holidays... Uh, health and safety, equality, all these things. But what often happens, or sometimes happens in these cases where you have a... But, a but, let's, let's just stop and do a quick ex, uh, example. A Polish construction company gets a contract to work on a big project, let's say Crossrail, and brings a batch of Polish workers across to do that part of the job. That They're posted workers, and they're subject to the directive. Now, the point is, what sometimes happens is that this means non-unionised workers being brought into a unionised place, typically a building site. And that is who Corbyn, in my view, is aiming at. He's crowd pleasing to the unions because they to the unions look like union busters yeah ironically ironically the european commission announced this week it was going to uh, uh, launch something called the european labor authority which is main, its main job is going to be to sort out all the issues around the posted workers directive and in fact it's, it's actually france who's been who's been one of the most vocal opponents of posted workers directive partly because they have such such uh, strong um, unions there compared to the UK but it is it is a big uh, concern even though i think the average time that a posted worker spends in the in another european country is 89 days i was reading today it's not very long it's certainly nothing like the 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 big step of uh, that many eastern europeans uh, took when they came to work in in the uk but it is symbolically very important and it's interesting that the the European Labour Authority is going to look, is going to sort this out and make sure that everyone gets the rights and the social rights and pensions and so on they're entitled to. Uh, but it's got a slightly wider ambit, which really Labour ought to be very much on board with, which is trying to ensure that wherever you work in Europe, you still have the right to state benefits and you maintain those. And um, the key part of that will be that yeah. there'll be an inspectorate in Brussels that will get, um, will chase up the inspectors, the, the Labour inspectors in all the EU countries to say, you're not doing your job properly. These people are being abused here. You need to enforce the law that you've that it is a national law that's come from a European directive, but you need to enforce that. Law. Yeah, enforce the Labour, should, way. Labour yeah. should be this should be another reason for Labour to support staying in the European Union. You know, the left says that it's a big uh, neoliberal project, but they're setting up a Labour rights enforcement agency, the four, I think possibly the third or fourth that the EU has. Surely that's the sort of thing that would, should persuade Labour to say, actually, it, we, we can build on this and, and improve workers' rights across the whole of the EU if we stay in. Yeah, People have spoken though, Peter, I think, you, <laughs> I think yeah. you'll notice. Economists sort of agree that apart from in very sort of specialist areas uh, that immigration does not drive down wages. You actually... Um, as, you know, for the Observer, you sort of did some investigation into agricultural workforce. Was there um, evidence there uh, 
Um, for, were there reasons for British workers to be unhappy? Not particularly. I mean, there is a global pattern of uh, developed nations importing uh, labour forces from less developed countries near them. So in Australia, the hard agricultural labour tends to be done by Southeast Asians from Vietnam. Uh, in the US, the hard agricultural labour tends to be done by Mexicans. And in the UK, it's circled round various bits of the Eastern European bloc. It used to be Poles, um, not so much anymore as the Polish economy has, has improved. Uh, now it's Bulgaria, Romania, uh, those bits of the former Eastern Bloc that have, um, whose economy is still struggling upwards. Every single one of the people that I ever talked to have, uh, in, in the agricultural field about Labour have said that they cannot get a British workforce to do it. These are jobs that the British do not want to do. Now, as I say, this is not particularly peculiar to Britain. It's it's the same the whole world over, where you have a diversion between economies. So there isn't a particular reason why a British workforce should be upset by this. And yet we are supposed to, you know, according to the Brexiters, we are supposed to have sympathy for these British workers who don't want the job <laughs> uh, and to hate the hard-working Bulgarian or Romanian guys who are prepared to get up at four o'clock in the morning, who have families to feed, who have you know, bills to pay and so on. I, I once got into terrible trouble when I, on my one appearance on BBC One's Question Time talking about Polish decorators shamefully coming over here, turning up on time, doing the job, drinking old grey tea, <laughs> staying until it was finished, not leaving until it was done properly. How dare they do that? Um, and uh, I was accused of being racist against British painters and decorators. One of, one of, one of Britain's most beleaguered minorities. Indeed, yeah. indeed. And finally, before we move on, can we make a quick recommendation? BBC Northern Ireland has launched a new mockumentary called Soft Border Patrol. It's not on broadcast TV, but it is on iPlayer. Um, some of us have been watching it. Peter, what did you think? I thought it was great. I mean, it's hard to satirise Brexit and the Irish border issue with Boris Johnson talking complete nonsense about it being as simple as the border between Camden and Westminster. You know, how do you satirise it? But they, I think they made some very astute points in a very kind of soft comedy way. First of all, the Border Patrol itself is exactly the sort of bureaucracy that the European Eurocrats and the British Civil Service would set up. So you set up, you have, you know, you set up a quango with a mission statement, a logo, a social media strategy, a telegenic chief executive who spouts PR waffle and the perfect touch, you then get the Quango to invite in the BBC to make a softball documentary where in, in order to get access they agree not to ask any awkward questions about what the fuck is all this about. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. And they keep making the points very subtly that no matter how chummy that uh, these Border Patrol people are. They are stopping people, bothering them, asking them intrusive questions and monitoring them. And there's all this, you know, even, even, something that we don't have now, we don't need. And you've got all of this surveillance. You've got like a big room with all these surveillance cameras without any real understanding of what, what, what are we doing, what are we collecting all this information it, it, for? It sort of worked. It was maybe the first really successful attempt at sort of Brexit comedy I've seen because it, it had that kind of, you know, like W1A or something. It's essentially about a kind of bureaucracy yeah, um, and about people who are either kind of sort of cynical or incompetent, um, or just or actually kind of you know nice and, and sort of capable enough, but just sort of trapped in this absurd system. And I love the the chief executive as she's going. Well, of course, this could mean the the end of the Northern Ireland peace process, and nobody wants that on their CV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was great. I was I was a little bit cynical about it, but I was completely wrong. It was very funny, and it, because it played, as you say, on this gentle humour that 
the British are quite good at, where we basically take the piss out of people who buy into management waffle, and uh, <laughs> and that was one of the ways into the subject. But it was also it was the absurdity was great as well. Uh, there was a wonderful scene in the first episode where there's a farm and on the plank. It, uh, on the plank, yeah, the farm straddles the border, and there's a stream that runs down the middle, and the farmers just you know not cooperating because he wants to keep going over there and getting sheep or shooting rats or something, <laughs> and and so they there's a, he puts a plank across it, and the border patrol comes comes out. Uh, and says, look, you can't do this. And they eventually, after a long time, come to a compromise where they sort it out by putting a line of tipex along the middle of the plank <laughs> and then it's OK. And the Dutch woman from the EU oh, yeah. was also sort of satirised because that's the thing. It's like if you are going to get humour out of Brexit, you know, you, you cannot have kind of like noble EU officials who are like just lovely and hyper-competent. You know, you also have to make fun of the way that, that they talk, not the way Dutch people talk, the way that kind of, you know, European bureaucrats talk. Yeah, uh, the, the, big, uh, the big thing for me in the whole of it that they kept dropping in very, very carefully, uh, little tiny drops of it at a time, when the most important point it made is that they're all saying, oh, we've got a nice cushy job now, a nice job with the pension, job for life. And the, the, the point is, you hear the, the Border Patrol people saying that, you see the woman who runs the agency saying that. The point is, this is the big danger, that they set up a border agency and then you've got all these people whose entire job depends on justifying its existence and expanding its existence and making it more and more intrusive. Otherwise, they lose those nice cushy jobs, those nice pensions and all the rest. That's the danger. And they, they, they didn't... They could have been very brutal and sort of, you know, cack-handed about it and put this right in your face. But what they do instead is they drop it very gently and you can hear these people sounding very pleased that they've got this nice easy job. That's their, their, their dog whistling to small state conservatives, you see, Peter. Indeed. Well, I heard <laughs> the whistle. I heard the whistle, yes. So that's Soft Border Patrol on the BBC iPlayer now. You've been hearing from him throughout the show, our special guest Jay Rayner, author of A Greedy Man in a Hungry World, observer, restaurant critic, broadcaster and food journalist. Um, food is like such an emotional thing and it seems like it gets wrapped up in um, issues of, of national identity. And we talk a lot on here about sort of culture wars and the, the irrational side of this whole debate. How much do you think? I mean, obviously, there's a there's a super pragmatic side of you know, food policy and supply and so on. Is is it emotional too? It's very emotional. Shortly before uh, the vote, a venerable food writer called Paul Levy, um, who coined the term foodie decades ago and wants you to know it, um, started circulating a round robin letter um, at the insistence of, I believe, Theodore Zeldin, which basically said, "We have gone from being the country of terrible, terrible food." Um, to the country of tapas bars and brilliant provincial French restaurants and so on and so forth. And we do not wish to sacrifice this all on the altar of um, Brexit. And um, I and he managed to get 100 signatures, some very, very significant people in the food world signed it. I think Nigella Lawson signed it and so forth. And I was desperately saying, please don't do this, because this is not an issue that is actually going to play to the base. This is going, you know, shouting at people and saying we can't leave the European Union because patatas bravas is not <laughs> the way to go. What it's, about the Ligurian olive oil, which uh, every and Britain yet, loves? And yet, um, after the vote, B. Wilson, a very good food writer, wrote a great piece for The New Yorker, which basically said that one of the benefits of the European Union for Britain had been a massive increase in the volume and availability of very good quality, uh, affordable food, and that it had improved the diet. I'm not talking about 
you know, tapas bars and Ligurian olive oil, just, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables in plentiful supply. Um, And it is it is an emotional issue because it goes to the heart of who we are. Um, Even though I did think the Theodore Zeldin, Paul Levy letter was laughable and not the sort of thing that anybody really wanted to hear, there was a point there, which was, are we just a cold, foggy island off the shore of somewhere interesting, or are we a part of that wider European culture? Um, And food is one way into that. Um, And we have become a different nation as a result of our membership. Well, reading any account of British food... Um, from a few decades ago. There is, there's not one that sort of sticks up for it. I've read stuff by food writers and journalists and memoirists. But it, should, it shouldn't be misunderstood. I mean, you know, you, you have to explain it. One of, one of the great sort of middle-class uh, tropes is, ah, the French, they have this great, deep uh, food culture, and we do not. And it does sound a bit brutal to put it this way, but, you know, they did surrender and go back to the fields. And that's that's what happened. Whereas we fought a war of national survival and we completely industrialised our, industrialized our food production process. We lost a generation of cooks um, because of an ingrained Puritanism uh, allied to this belief that actually cooking and eating anything that was luxurious was in some way decadent and obscene. So, no, we didn't have a food culture because we'd, we'd buggered it up fighting a war. And the long tail of that was about 25, 30 years after the end of the war. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, France, Italy, Spain managed to sustain what had been an embedded food culture. It's amazing. I had no idea. That wasn't in Darkest Hour. Oh, I'm sorry. They should have have left it in. But if you you look at the way that the the whole food system in the UK was, uh, was essentially formed to be part of the national struggle... Um, you can suddenly see why it, it ended up the way it did. Uh, one of the interesting things is all the things that were put on ration, fish and chips never were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was because the fish was plentiful in the sea around and potatoes were plentiful, plus it was considered by Churchill's government that the working man, in inverted commas, would uh, give up the fight if they were robbed of their ability to eat fish and chips. And also it's an extremely nutritious and balanced meal. That scene was in the movie. Yeah, that was a, that was a key one. I mean, sort of more pragmatically, one of the things that people are concerned about is sort of food safety and security, and what happens if, um, you know, in a hard Brexit, we're basically, you know, it's the chlorine in eating chicken flooding our, our shelves. How bad? I've never had how bad chlorinated chicken. Situation? How bad is chlorinated chicken right, so and how likely is it that we will have to just take any old crap? The chlorinated chicken issue is this. If you raise chickens in large flocks disease will be an issue. You have two ways of dealing with this. Either you look at your husbandry at the uh, at the front of it and you inoculate the herb while it, the flock while it's alive or you go sod it disease is going to happen we'll deal it with deal with it at the end and just put them through a chlorine bath to deal with pathogens. Will eating chlorinated chicken actually cause you any health issues? No, it won't. Uh, but does it mean that you are eating a lower quality chicken? Yes, it does. Because it's a way, uh, it's an enabler. That process is an enabler for using lower welfare standards, for cramming them together and not really caring if they drop dead of nasty diseases. That's what it comes down to. And is the likelihood that we would, I mean, how much leverage do we have to sort of push back if we're trying to make a trade deal with the US after Brexit? Um, how much sort of strength do we have to just go, no, we're not taking that, that, that and that? Well, I think we have almost no strength whatsoever. I mean, I, I, I think it's important to put all of this into a global sort of framework. So if we go back to 2006, 
uh, New Labour commissioned a report on food security. And that report said that food security was not an issue for developed countries because we could buy our way out of everything. And it was nicknamed the Leave It to Tesco report by people <laughs> in the food industry. What they had failed to recognise was the massive uh, economic developments going on in Asia and elsewhere um, with BRICS nations and so forth. So we, 14% of the world's middle classes are in Asia at the beginning of this century. By 2050, it's going to be 68%. Um, and they are insisting on eating as, as we do. And where the British supermarkets saw themselves having absolute access to the global larder, it is no longer the case. China will pay as much as the British supermarkets will for the produce. Um, and, you know, America can trade with anybody. The British supermarkets have got the British public addicted to overly cheap food. And as a result of that, they don't know how the hell they're going to buy their way out of the issue of supplying our shortfall, which is enormous. We are only slightly less than 60% self-sufficient in food these days, down from mid-70% in the 90s. But, of course, you've got all, all, all of the big agricultural producing nations, including ones like Vietnam, that were never such big agriculture exporters in, in the past. Yeah. They have much more efficient farming systems. Um, maybe in, in the long term, there'll be such a demand for food that uh, any farmer will be in business. But in certainly the short and medium term, if we opened up trade now, uh, we would be uh, our farms would be wiped out. I think Ian looked into this and pointed out it would only be kind of a bit of chicken farming that would be left because... If you look at things like rice and stuff like that, we don't grow, obviously. You've got things like grains that uh, huge South American farms and North American farms as well can produce in vast quantities. You, you name it, another country can produce vast surpluses, even larger surpluses than they, than they um, produce now because they're still taking over virgin land and, and turning it into, into farmland. So this, this, is a, this is a problem that, um, that I guess the, the Brexiters gloss over when they talk about their enthusiasm for trade deals because all... All these countries will, well, the main thing they will want is to send their agricultural surpluses to us in the next 10, 15 years. And that means, how can our farmers survive another 10, 15 years if their competition completely wipes them out? Uh, the, key, the key thing, I think, is that we have to understand that there is a massive dysfunction in the food supply chain in the UK, pre-existing any thought of Brexit. You know, I was writing about this going back... 10 years ago that we were in a, a situation where because we had become so used to paying so little for food, various bits of the agriculture industry were being forced out, dairy for example, pork farming, um, and that there was no, we've handed over the food supply chain to uh, I think it's 12 companies run 95% of food retail um, and as a result of that the British public is not yet completely aware of how much they may have to pay um, if we do leave and are removed from the EU, um, free the free movement of, of EU goods. One of the think tanks recently came up with a wheeze, which I just wanted to mention to you because I wanted to see what your reaction was going to be. Yeah, They wanted to give everyone a, I think it was £100 voucher, everyone in the country each year, which they could only spend on British food. Jay's looking thoughtful. Uh, well... <laughs> Uh, everybody in the country, £100, £60 million. Uh, Peter, give me the sum. What's that amount? Uh, uh, yes, that's the number. So £100, £60 million people, £6 million, isn't it? Yeah. £6 billion. Yeah. £6 billion. Yeah. Well, food retailers, £120 billion. Well, yeah. So, Plus, uh, <laughs> how on earth? Imagine the, you know, oh, here's my voucher. I only want British. No, no, not those apples. No, no, just the British ones. God, I mean, just imagine standing in the queue. You'd I'd be love to work <laughs> in a think tank. 
There is no <laughs> doubt that um, there could be if the if, if the borders go up, if we can't do any deals with anyone, if we're on WTO trading, uh, you know, trading rules. Um, that some farmers in Britain are going to benefit from that because we're going to be so desperate for something to eat. Mm. But there is simply not the capacity in this country to supply, regardless of whether you give everybody a £100 voucher. It's just not there. Um, and, you know, our agriculture output has been falling for years. We're in, we're in serious trouble. Um, the, uh, I, I find myself thinking that actually we might be, in the end, desperate for chlorinated chicken because it's all we can get. Well, you'd have to kind of revolutionise. I mean, I don't know, almost like a, I don't know, like a wartime economy or something. Just like central planning, agriculture to yeah. kind of. I, again, one of the one of the things that's little understood is the just-in-time culture that now uh, runs the whole of our food supply chain. So we used to have somewhere between fifty and sixty days wheat on hand in this country, and it's now about two to three days. Uh, we just presume it's just going to keep coming. The shipping lanes will be open. How long will it take if we suddenly find that we have these borders that are a little more complicated? Um, you know, it, it would, it, an 18-hour delay at Dover would create utter, utter chaos, let alone if, you know, there are certain countries we can't even trade with. And the potential, with, if, if they don't sort out, the, you know, the borders and make everything kind of flow as, as fast as humanly possible, um, presumably the kind of... Potential for waste is going to be oh, it's, seen it's as well. Things yeah. rotting. It's, a, it's and... appalling. So, I mean, you have two issues to look at. One is an acute stage where it's all a complete snafu of ridiculous proportions. And perhaps if you're hopeful, that may only go on for a few months. And then you have a phase after that where it settles down and we are subject to enormous tariffs and the cost of our food goes up. Um, which has already been exacerbated by the pound dropping by, you know, 15, 20%, which has caused massive price increases and, double whammy, encouraged those companies which are good at it to export more of their produce because they're cheaper abroad. Well, I wanted to ask you about the, the bane of my A-level politics course, which was the common agricultural policy. I must, yeah. I'm ashamed to say that the EU was not my favourite part of the course, and this was definitely my least favourite part of that. You know, obviously one of the arguments breaks is saying, right, we don't have to put up sort of with that anymore. What has been the... From your point of view, what needed reforming? Obviously, you are arguing right. reform rather than leave, yeah, but yeah, yeah. what's wrong with so it? So, first of all, if you, if you go back and, and look at the foundation of what is now the European Union, the ECS was, Treaty of Rome and all of that, um, and I'm sure in previous episodes you've, you've intoned the legacy of a hundred years of European war and a desire to end a hundred years of European war. And part of the business of doing that was to deal with the Malthusian issue of lack of resources. In other words, can we keep Europe properly fed? What do we need to do? Now, agriculture is a difficult business because it has risks which are not necessarily predictable. There can be disease, there can be weather, and then there can be commodity markets and price rises all over the place. You need to do something to deal with risk. In other parts of the world, particularly the US, one of the ways they do this is a government-backed insurance scheme. So you're insured against risk to try and even out those challenges. The European solution uh, was to pay people a sum based on acreage. Um, and as a result, what that really did was to stifle uh, innovation. Um, it, it enabled uh, unproductive farms to continue to push on through 
despite the fact that they hadn't actually modernised in the way they needed to. Um, and it pretty much funded a lack of production. Um, so the single farm payment as was, which is a simple, you know, based on acreage, has been a disaster for Europe's farmers. The um, private eye talks quite regularly in their agri uh, column about uh, slipper farmers, who are farmers who own land, put the slippers on, but don't farm it. Um, and there was one statistic that the only increasing form of land use in the UK was uh, agricultural land not used for agriculture, just left to go fallow. So that single farm pay payment is an issue. It, it needs reform and it needs looking at in a different way to manage risk. What's interesting is that Gove has gone, has ignored that for the moment and has gone to the other bit, which he's absolutely right on, which is that uh, EU rules on environmental um, improvements pay farmers for the things they do, not for the output. Weirdly, am I allowed to point out that that bit of policy was included in the paper that I sent to him in July? You are allowed I... to point that out. <laughs> I did actually say, you know, we, we, are, we are funding them just to do stuff without actually checking whether it has any impact. Shouldn't we be paying them by the impacts that they have rather than telling them what they need to do to get there? And um, lo and behold, that turned up as one of his new policies. Go me. So he likes you after all. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting too is that for me, um, if you look at what we export to yeah. Europe and other places, actually food and drink is very low. Even though Scotch whiskey is surprisingly big, or not surprisingly, depending how you look at it, food is a really small proportion. Manufacturing, pharma, all these things, much, much bigger. But symbolically, it's hugely important, and that's why you find everyone, even quite ardent Brexiteers, getting appalled at the idea that people might be able to make a pasty that we called Cornish when it isn't. And, <laughs> and the idea, it's, it's a very... it's it's. It's one of the things that does cut through with Brexiteers, and that's why I have a little bit of kind of hope maybe that this might be one of the things even that, that changes people's minds because food cuts through in a way that when you talk about farmer exports, it doesn't, or supply chains, it doesn't. I don't know. No, optimism. appeal to their food nationalism. Exactly, oh, food it, nationalism. That's uh, what I'm. It has to be about. said. Yeah. Actually, one of the hilarious things is that you know, in the heartlands of Brexit, here, the the one thing they're all suddenly very upset about is that it's going to mean the removal of the um, certification systems that define products as being of geographic significance or a recipe significance. I have to say, personally, I've always thought those were bollocks because they're a misunderstanding of how food, his uh, food history works. The idea that there's a defined recipe for anything is complete cobblers. But so you've got the, you've got these ardent Brexiteers who are who are deeply worried about the loss of their certificates from Melton Mowbray pork pies. What is interesting also is that you know you'd think the Brexiters, if they had any principles, would now be saying, look, the CAP has all these faults. Even Jay Rayner has a long list of faults as a Remainer with the CAP. We can sweep all of that away. What we will do is we'll go for a, an American-style system of insurance. We will stop paying rich landowners just to own land and actually start taxing them, which you know. Uh, Perhaps many no, people that would be nice. indeed, uh, and you know, only concentrate any government aid on people who are actually poor farmers. In other words, they are poor people. Therefore, we give them welfare. Now, it's interesting that there's, there's an absolute baffling silence on this because, of course, there's a huge 
chunk of, of of farmers who are just assuming that the subsidies will keep rolling once we leave. That we, we, we'll moan about the CAP, but we'll basically reproduce it in British government. They policy. assume they assume two things: one that the subsidies would keep coming, yep. and actually, to be fair to them, they assumed this because they were told it during the campaign. It was repeatedly said to them, "Of course, you'll still get the money because we'll, we'll have all our money. We can still subsidise you." But they also think all the red tape will be removed. There was a whole bunch of what they saw as environmental issues that uh, were stifling the way that they could do their job. Um, funnily enough, Gove, who's a you know curious man, um, seems to be trying to occupy the high ground on the environmental stuff. All of these discussions, it has to be said, are going on within the EU anyway. So, as I say, this is not uh, Gove being radical and breaking from the EU. He's actually having exactly the same conversations as they are. In the piece he wrote for The Observer, I think, last year, it was a kind of long read about the various problems that Brexit pose for food industry. And you mm. covered things, you know, stuff we've talked about, food security, supply chain, uh, migrant workers. Uh, if you were food czar, if Gove really came around and said, look, mate, water under the bridge, sorry about the tweets. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I mean, and these are all kind of big issues in sort of different areas of the, of, of the food chain. Um, it's probably not called the food chain. Mm. But you know what I mean? But in parts of the industry, what would be your sort of top priorities? What worries you most in terms of... Well, the first the one is slightly nebulous, actually, which is trying to encourage the British public to understand they don't pay enough for food. We, we spend about 10.1, 10.2% of expendable income on food. Um, and that is not enough to support a viable uh, agricultural industry we need to pay more and pay more so that that can go to fund british farmers so they invest in the agricultural base how are you going to make that happen i'll be absolutely honest i'm not entirely sure but one thing you can do is completely reform the grocery codes adjudicator uh when this office was set up despite every political party pushing back against it it came up with a ridiculous system which is that it will only adjudicate on the relationship between supermarkets um, and there were seven or eight of them that were defined, and their direct suppliers. But it would not go down the food chain. And that is a misunderstanding of how the food chain works. So many farmers will actually supply um, a middleman who will process their food and then send it on. Um, and the grocery codes adjudicator cannot in any way adjudicate on that relationship. And that needs to be fiercely dealt with. Um, there needs to be an understanding that this industry needs to receive enough money to make profit so that it can actually invest. And what do you think will actually happen with the um, the agricultural labourer situation? I mean, do you think there is going to be a kind of a sudden shortage and there's literally going to be food it's already in the fields? It's already happening. Because, you know, one of the great myths, which obviously you've discussed many times before, <clears throat> is that... Brexit is an issue for two, three years in the future. It's not. A lot of people are having to make their plans now. And um, there was a lot of controversy recently about one particular fruit company announcing that they were moving some of their production to China um, because they couldn't be absolutely certain. Now, that particular producer may well have been playing to the gallery, but it did point out the fact that, you know, if you are a business producing large volume fruit and veg, you are not thinking, I wonder what my harvest is going to be like a month from now. You are making, I don't want to make it sound like a Soviet system, but a five-year plan. You're looking to the future. And already they are starting to look around and go, Christ, where are we going to get our workforce from? What are we going to do? Particularly, you know, one of the, one of the straightforward things that happened immediately when the pound dropped, um, a lot of the migrant workforce thought, 
oh, well, if we get paid in pounds, it's not worth what it was to send it back. So we'll go and work in Spain instead. Um, and, you know, people are already, there is a deficit. And one of the things that was made clear to me was I said, you know, we are seeing not, it's not that we're actually not getting the full numbers, it's just we're getting a lower quality workforce. So is, is, is Corbyn ahead of the game here with his allotment? Should we all be <laughs> keep, keeping chickens and growing veg? Um, well, I would say no, <laughs> but on, a, on, a, on another set of issues, metrics, which is carbon sustainability. So uh, we like to think that if we all had allotments, it would be a much more sustainable model. But actually, the carbon footprint of an allotment is appalling. Uh, because you, when, you, when you look at carbon footprints, you have to do what's called a whole life cycle analysis. That's the carbon in the buildings and in the materials you use, and even in your own lifestyle in the amount of that time. So if you drive to the allotment... Uh, if it happens to be that far away. Even if you buy, you know, three shovels each a year, you're, there's so much carbon going to produce low-yield food. It is not the way to produce food. Large-scale agriculture is actually a brilliant way to produce low-carbon food. It's about yield, as long as you can do it in an environmentally sustainable way. Well, that's good. I'm too lazy for an allotment anyway. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, one of the hilarious things is, if you, I, I don't know if any of you have either keep chickens or have mates who keep chickens in the, in the, you know, the city's suburbs, and they, oh, I love my chickens, I've got all these free eggs. Free eggs? How much did it cost you to set up your coop with your chickens? And once they start doing the sums, it turns out it's like £2.50 an egg. <laughs> but it's very good for mental well-being. Allotments are great for education and health, mental health. Brilliant for that. Just really expensive supply of food. Terrible for the environment and uh, yeah, not brilliant so, so, <laughs> for the environment, but just very expensive food. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and they're not a solution to feeding uh, an increasingly urbanised population of sixty million. They're not. Amazing, amazingly, yeah. amazingly. <laughs> no, we're not all going to be going to our allotment in you know Broadgate and Fenchurch Street <laughs> to pluck cu cucumbers in our lunch hours. Thanks, Jake. And as we pass around the mints and sticky drinks in Bistro Romaniacs, that's the end of the show. Thanks to Jay Rayner for being our special guest. Obviously, the service has been terrible, but apart yeah, from that, what kind of review do you... <laughs> well, uh, you know, the canapes. <laughs> Where were they? It's kind of a... It's like a bring-your-own... Yeah, no, Bring-your-own everything. If I'd deal. known yeah. that. But I think the ambience had a lot going for it. Yeah. It really does. Thank it's, you for having me. It's ha intimate, isn't it? Yeah, thank yes. you for having me and, and not asking me too often, how is everything? I, I was everything. everything. And you didn't ask me once, apart, apart from now. No, it didn't loom over you. No, you didn't. So yeah. I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> Thanks also to Ros and Peter. We'll finish with a traditional snippet of an improving European language. This week, it's another of our rock and roll Romaniacs, Peridor Ap Gwyneth from the drum and bass band Pendulum, with a bit of Welsh. Os ydych chi'n credu fod Brexit yn mynd i ddatrys eich problemau, chi'n dwpfel sledge. And this week, the traditional sleep to our Patreon backers will be accompanied by celebrated jazz pianist Rainer the Romainer. <laughs> It's a massive shout-out from me to J.M. Wilson, James McSweeney, Marie-Anne P., Neil Amos, a friend of yours, Jay, oh, I believe. Oh, Neil! Yes, oh, yes. And me. the mysterious Mr. A.R. Birchley. Why is he mysterious? It's a mystery. It's a big up and hold tight from me to Gary Keane, Andy Newman, Hans Forhaug, Amanda Harvey and Jill Mann. And finally, thanks for coming out. Drive safely. Carol Converse, Richard Holton, Maggie Pearson, Niall Jackson and Daniel Wrightson. See you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Lenski with Peter Collins and Ross Taylor. Audio production was by Jack Claremont with the help of Rachel at Soho Radio and the producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>